0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. We're going to look at Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. The words will be on the screen. If you have a Bible, it would be good for you to have one. Uh, if you're watching on the live stream, uh, grab a Bible. Beginning with verse 6, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I shall have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're going to teach us through it, how you are molding and shaping us by it, through the power of your Spirit. I ask that you would just soften our hearts now, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would enable us to see what it is that you have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As promised, I said we'll start dealing with the hard stuff of chapter 9 this week. Um, I said this last week. I'm just going to reiterate it. When I first encountered Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9, it wrecked me uh, in a good way. Erect me. I, I want you to know that the reason why chapter nine is in the Bible is because it's for your good. Like it's there, it's inspired by God, and uh, and this whole idea of God's sovereign grace and this idea of election is not was not born out of a vacuum. It comes right from chapters like Romans chapter nine. You know, if you're taking notes, Ephesians chapter one. Romans chapter 8, which we spent several weeks looking at. But it wrecked me when I encountered it for the first time. I had a near crisis of faith. And this was was before I even knew who guys like John Calvin were or uh, Jacobus uh, Arminius. I, I didn't know who those guys were. I was wrestling with the doctrine of election not because of some book I was reading by some author but because of the book Uh, in in Romans chapter 9. So what you need to know, and I said this in the first first service, what you need to understand and what you need to know is this idea of the doctrine of election was not born out of a vacuum and that what you believe uh, did not come out of a vacuum either. We stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. I'm talking about our church fathers and mothers, people who have been a part of the church long before you were even thought of by, by mom and dad, you know? And so we stand on their shoulders. And uh, it's good. It's good to know whose shoulders you stand on. Uh, there are godly men and women who have wrestled through some of the same things that you're wrestling through now. And uh, in this case, things like the doctrine of election. Uh, there's uh, two guys I want to introduce you to. Two handsome, stellar-looking guys. Let's go to the slide if it works. There we go. Uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, of, of, uh, who was a bishop, uh, the bishop of Hippo who was uh, in the continent of Africa. He was a bishop in the church and a monk by the name of Pelagius. And, uh, and, and so let me just give you kind of a little bit of a history lesson if you're not familiar with these guys. I, I want you to be John Calvin... Or not John Calvin. Uh, St. Augustine uh, said something that, that bothered Pelagius, and what he said was something to the equivalent of, it was a, it was in the form of a prayer. Uh, "Lord, uh, you, know, command what you will and allow me, or, or enable me to obey what you command." I'm paraphrasing what he said. Pelagius heard that, and he said, that. I don't like that. Why would God expect us to obey his commandments if we we're unable to obey his commandments? See, you hear some similar wrestling that maybe you've wrestled with? Um, John Calvin said, and I keep going John Calvin, he's next. Uh, uh, St. Augustine said that all people are born spiritually dead. That's what he read in the Bible. Most of the church in his day believed that. Pelagius said, uh-uh, no, uh, when people are born, babies are born good, and they, have, they are not affected by the fall of Adam and Eve, that will come later. Uh, so, so Pelagius, I believe, also believed that all people eventually will become saved. Augustine said, no, only only those who believe. So that's we stand on these shoulders. So there have been some modifications to what Pelagius believed. There's a a belief, a, a theological belief called semi-Pelagianism. Can you say that? No, I'm sorry, I did not warn her. Um, this is kind of like venom when I was talking about venom and Spider Man. She's like, how am I going to sign this? I don't know. Um, so semi-Pelagianism, which is kind of a modification of what he, he believed. And I'm going to introduce you to two guys that came on this, onto the scene a little over a 1,000 years after these guys died. They lived in the 4th century, by the way, uh, Augustine and Pelagius. So just so you know, I couldn't resist. I saw this on, on uh, Google, and I'm like, I wish I created that. Um, John Calvin duking it out with uh, uh, Arminius. That's uh, this guy, Jacobus Arminius. They lived in uh, the the 1500s during the Protestant Reformation. Okay, uh, we get the phrases uh, Calvinism. How many of you have heard of Calvinism? And Arminianism. How many of you have heard of Arminianism? Okay, um, if you haven't, that's okay. It's, it's really not super important, but I just want you to be aware of it. So Calvin believed pretty much the same thing that Augustine believed, Arminius believed a hybrid form of what Pelagius believed, okay? So go to the next slide, which I really like. That's a good graphic of Arminianism versus Calvinism. Arminians, uh, true Arminians believe that when you're born, you're born with some sense of goodness in you and that you're able to do to, to respond to God in love and obedience. Calvinism says, no, when you're born, you're born spiritually dead. And something needs to happen with you miraculously in your heart for you to be able to respond to God. So those are uh, those two things. I'll give you uh, just a, an idea, that, that uh, just so you have this in your mind. Um, there is a spectrum with those who would call themselves Arminian who say I'm an Arminian like I, I, in terms of th- my theological persuasion and there's a spectrum of those who would say I'm a Calvinist uh, some, some churches or denominations that fall into these categories for Arminianism would be Methodists uh, Assemblies of God um, Nazarene uh, I, there's a whole bunch of others under Calvinists uh, believe it or not if you're a pure Baptist, you would fall into this category. Um, Presbyterian, uh, who else? Probably Lutheran, um, and some other things. And some of you are probably already guessing. I know what Pastor Keith is, because I've heard him preach long enough. Um, I, I'm i over here. Now, in the Calvinist view, you some will say, I'm a four-point Calvinist, I'm a three-point Calvinist. Arminians will say, yeah, I... I I don't believe. I mean, I believe that people need to believe in Jesus to become to to, to be saved. But some Armenians will say that eventually every single person will wind up believing in Jesus, even even those who are dead, and everybody's going to be saved one day. Not all Armenians believe that. Not all Calvinists believe everything that uh, those who followed on the heels of John Calvin believe. So does that I hope that helps. That kind of gives you some some spectrum of. Kind of you stand on the shoulders of these guys. And they played a very important role in in church history. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of Calvinism versus Arminianism. I'll trust that for you to go home and and work work that out on your own. But here's the more important question: what does the Bible have to say about it? Right? So so it's good to know history. I think it's important. And it's good to know whose shoulders you stand on. That's important. You should understand who John, or know something about John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius. You should know something about them. Now, the, now you do. Uh, those were two, these were two godly men who loved Jesus that were wrestling with, with uh, the freedom of a person's will versus the freedom of God's sovereign will. And they were wrestling with those things. Uh, but the more important question is what does God have to say about it? When I encountered Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9, I didn't have John, books of John Calvin sitting next to me. I didn't have commentary sitting next to me. I was having a crisis of faith almost because of what I was encountering in the Bible. I already was doing street evangelism. I was on the corners of South, uh, uh, South Street in Philadelphia shouting to people, telling them they need to believe in Jesus. and I was wrestling with Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9. I, uh, just so you know, while I was doing that, I, was, I attended in the morning, on Sunday mornings, I went to a Methodist church that had a huge influence on my thinking and on my life. I praised God for a primitive Trinity Methodist church. It's a mouthful. But it was, it was, and, and Pastor Roback, I still remember his name, he baptized me. And on the, in the evenings, I was attending a Pentecostal church youth group. That was a huge church of like 2,000 people, and, and they were praying in tongues all around me, and I was going to Pentecostal conferences, and I praised God for their role in my life. After I left, left the Methodist church, I, I found some friends who went to another church, and they were still, they, they leaned in this category. I felt alone as I was wrestling with Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9. I, I would ask you know, pastor friends of mine, you know, how do, What is this saying? And uh, I wasn't satisfied with the answers that they were giving me. And so the question is, what does the Bible have to say about it? And that's what I want to uh, just spend our time doing now, is just exploring what does Romans chapter 9 say? What does it say? And here's my encouragement. I said this at the end of my sermon in the first service. I'm going to say it at the beginning uh, for you. But you may walk out of here saying, I'm not sure I believe what Pastor Keith just said. Good. Go home and wrestle with the scriptures over it. Take everything that I say and measure it against the word of God. That's what I want you to do. What I say is not gospel. What's gospel is in this book. This is the book that's without error. Me, I'm jacked up. Like, I get some things wrong. Like, if you ask my wife uh, kind of where I stood on some things theologically when we first met versus where I'm at now, she'll tell you, I've changed a lot, but the one thing that has not changed is, is I believe the Word of God to be 100% true. So what does the Bible have to say about it? And the question we should be asking ourselves is this, who are the promises for? The promises of God, because Paul, in verse 6, asked the question, is it, has the Word of God failed? He says, "You know, it makes a statement. It hasn't failed, but he knows that people are asking the question: Has the word of God failed? The people that would have heard the, the the letter to the Romans read to them were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles who were who believed in Jesus, and he wants to answer that question. And he does that. He answers that question for us." In in, in, in three ways. He gives us three reasons why the Word of God has not failed. Reason number one, the promise given to Abraham is for true Israel, not ethnic Israel. That's verse B, or uh, verse 6, the second part of verse 6. The promises given to Abraham is for true Israel, not ethnic Israel. That's reason one. And the reason why he, he said this is the reason is he, he he is alluding to Genesis chapter twelve, verse two. I will bless you, God said to you. Know what God was promising Abraham? Eight, so that you will be a blessing. Do you know what God was promising Abraham? I'm going to bless the nations, and this is how I'm going to do it. Step one, you're going to have descendants. You're going to have a child. You're going to have children. You're going to have grandchildren. Abraham, even though you don't have any child yet, you will. Step two, your descendants will become a great nation. That's step two. And step three, out of that great nation, the rest of the nations will be blessed. How will they be blessed? Well, we learn later through Scripture through a descendant of Abraham by the name of Jesus. Good Sunday school answer. Two of you said, said Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is is the the promise that was given to Abraham. So that's reason number one. The promise given to Abraham is for true Israel. And that all who believe in Jesus become recipients of the promise that was given to Abraham. And so, and by receiving the promise of Abraham, they become true Israel. I'll unpack true Israel in a little bit, so... Don't worry. Reason number two why the word of God has not failed. Not all of the descendants of Abraham are the children of Abraham. Well, What does he mean by that? Just because you're a... This is the reason why the word of God has not failed. Just because you're a biological descendant of Abraham does not mean that your sins are forgiven. That's what he's saying here. The only means by which your sins can be forgiven is through the promise that came through Abraham, and that promise is Jesus. Now three of you or four of you said it. Okay, I'm waiting for the whole every, all of you to say it. Uh, so that promise is Jesus. And uh, the means by which God would deliver his blessing to Abraham and for the nations is first he would greatly multiply Abraham's descendants, he would give Abraham's descendants land, and he would bring the blessing, and that blessing came nearly, just over 2,000 years ago, through who? Jesus. No, Mary. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was trying to trick you. Um, Mary. And then it was Jesus. Nice. Um, Third, the third reason why the word of God has not failed. Only those who receive the promise of Abraham are the children of God. That's Romans chapter 8, right? So how do you become a child of God? How do you have your sins forgiven? How do you get reconciled to God? You get reconciled to God through? Good. All right. Uh, Some of you are not confident anymore. Um, Through Jesus. Through Jesus. That's how you are reconciled to to God. Through Jesus. And, and uh, as a result of placing your faith in Jesus as the one who lived the life you could never live, died the death that you deserved, and on the third day rose from the grave, that's how you become a son or daughter of the living God, right? That's Romans chapter 8. So Paul is saying, listen, in light of what I wrote in Romans chapter 8, the word of God has not failed Because those who receive the promise of Abraham are those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. The children of God are true Israel. Now, for those of you who love Israel, and I hope all of you do, that does not mean, and we'll get to this later in Romans, that does not mean that there is not a physical promise for physical Israel. There is. But right now, uh, most of Israel is atheistic and do not believe in God. Not the God of the Bible. And Jesus said, there's coming a time where Israel, physical Israel, will see his appearing and or will, will, will respond to Jesus' appearing and they will respond in this, in this way, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus will set up his kingdom. And, but... But understand that when it comes to the people of God, what I read in the Bible, there is one people of God. And that people of God are the people who by faith have placed their faith in the promise of God, and that promise is Jesus. And so Paul answers the question, this is why. This is why the word of God has not failed. For these three reasons. That you are the people of God if you have placed your faith and trust in God. That's what unites you to God. And then he goes on to say, he gives us the, um, he explains how the promises of God is given, or how the promise of God is given. That's my second point. Uh, After defining who the promise of Abraham is for, he explains how the promise is given. This is where people get messed up. Like, this is, like, bothersome people. I talked to I know. After the first service, somebody came up to me and said, "Yeah, I mean, I, I know th- this is what it's saying in the Bible. But it still bothers me, and uh, that's okay. I want you to know that's okay. It, it, so God is big enough to handle the things that you're bothered by, um, but He explains to us how His promises are given, and we see this in verse, verse, uh, let's see, verse, verse nine. For this, if you follow along, for this is what the promise said." About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul is quoting or alluding back to Genesis chapter 18. So what was going on in Genesis 18? Well, before Genesis 18, Sarah and Abraham had this brilliant idea. Really, it was Sarah's idea. Um, she said that, hey, you know, I'm too old to have a child, so I have an idea. Let's do what the rest of the people do. And that is, here's my servant, Hagar, go lay down, go sleep with her, get her pregnant, and that child will become our child. And uh, that was their idea, which is a really bad idea. And uh, it it didn't go so well for Hagar or for Ishmael. But here's the deal. This is what you need to understand. Ishmael was the firstborn son to Abraham. And in that culture, and even amongst the, the Hebrew people, the firstborn son was the heir of the father, okay? And, and so, so then, several chapters later, God says, listen, before I destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, I have some news for you. By this time next year, you're going, Sarah's going to have a child, a biological child out of her womb, even though she's way past the age of being able to give birth. She's way past menopause. And I'm going to do the impossible. And then what did Sarah do? She was eavesdropping and she laughed, right? And so then the angel of the Lord said this in verse 13 of Genesis 18. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord. That's what it was God's response. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So, what's the point? The point is, God is able to do the impossible. Well, what's impossible? Well, Sarah was not able to give birth to a child, and God made it possible. And even though Ishmael was the legitimate heir to, the, to, to, to Abraham, God chose. Isaac instead. He said, Isaac is going to be born. And here's what you need to understand, ready? Neither child did anything wrong. Ishmael didn't do anything wrong. Isaac didn't do anything wrong. They were raised by the same dad. For I mean, for Ishmael for a good chunk of his childhood. Raised by the same dad. Um, was introduced to the same God. Was experienced a similar culture. Ate the same food. They didn't do anything wrong. But yet God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Now some would say, and Paul recognizes this, some would say, well, you know, I I, I think the reason why Isaac became the seed of promise or the child of promise is because Abraham and Sarah were just idiots at the beginning and did something stupid and the consequence of that was Hagar and Ishmael. And then Paul says, no, no, no. <laughs> in case you're asking or saying that in your own mind, let me go on. And then he goes on to say, and not only so. This is not the only example. Let me go on. Uh, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. I'll stop there, because then you get to verse 13, and that, that's problematic for some. So, so Paul is saying, listen, uh, Jacob and Esau were were in the womb. They were in they were in Rebecca's womb and they did nothing wrong. And even though they did nothing wrong, God chose Jacob over Esau. Now some would say, well, Paul's just addressing you know nations and and stuff like that some will some have interpreted chapter 9 as being a reference to Israel versus all other nations but but the hard thing about that about coming to that conclusion is that Paul is speaking about individual human beings and the fact that he would choose Isaac over Ishmael or Jacob over Esau you still have the same problem that you have you know, if, if, uh, if he's speaking also about individuals that God chooses, which we'll get into more next week, but I just want to lay kind of a, more of a foundation here. So then you get to verse 13. Have any of you been bothered by verse 13 before? You can be honest, I was. I mean, this is one of the verses that messed me up. Uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, like, how does that work? What's going on here? Like, what is God? What is God saying? Like, how could He say that about Esau? In Genesis twenty-five, verse twenty-one through twenty-three, uh, we get we're given a little more detail about this whole situation about God choosing. Jacob over Esau. It says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. That's really important. I forgot to mention this in the first service. But God knew what he was doing, and the reason why Rebekah was able to get pregnant was because God answered whose prayer? Jacob's prayer, right? And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if this is thus, or if it is thus, why, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Like God, God blessed Rebekah with these two children, knowing that he would choose Jacob over Esau to be the seed of promise. Neither child did anything wrong, immoral, or anything like that. It had everything to do with God's free, his freedom to choose who he wants to choose. And that's the point Paul is making here. He's like, that's the point. Um, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what is that, what is that talking about? I think I have the, there we go. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jesus said something similar in Luke chapter 14, and I'll explain what is meant by this, you know, God loving Jacob and hating Esau. Jesus said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not, what? Hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and even in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now you should know this by now. Is Jesus saying, be mean to your parents? Is he saying, no, oh, good, good answer. Is, uh, is, he, is he saying, hate mom and dad, hate mom and dad? No, no. In fact, the Bible is pretty, pretty clear. Honor your mother and father and love them, right? And obey them. Uh, the point Jesus is making here is make Jesus primary over everything else in your life. The point that God was making about Esau and Jacob is that um, God... God chose Jacob over Esau. Now, there are two types of love in the Bible that, that, descri- that God exercises that we see in the Bible. Let's go to the next slide. Um, God's goodwill love, which is, some theologians or people call this love of benevolence, okay? You know what this is? This is the kind of goodwill love that God has for all peoples. So the reason why your neighbors woke up this morning who don't believe in Jesus is the same reason why you woke up this morning. God was good to you, and he's good to them. The same reason why God is allowing, as we speak, uh, people of other faith and other countries to be able to go to bed, uh, in beds, and, and, and sleep for the night because of his benevolent love. But there's another love here, and this, was, this is the love that Jacob and Isaac were beneficiaries of, and that is his affectionate love, uh, his covenantal love. Uh, it's also known as love of com- complacency. It sounds weird, but his affectionate love, and that's the love that he placed on, on Jacob. And the question I asked the first service, and the question I'm going to ask you, is when you wrestle through these passages, what do you do with them? Like, what do you do with this? What do you do with the statement, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? Paul code continues in verse 14 he says what shall we say then is there injustice on god's part like some some people respond to chapter 9 like i did like my i I probably even said it out loud in my bedroom as i was staring at these these words and and was trying to figure out what they were saying i probably even said out loud that's not fair like i kept a journal and i in my journal i just said "I, i don't know what to do with these verses it just doesn't seem fair And Paul understands that's going to be the response of anybody who who read chapter 8 and has read most of chapter 9. That's not fair. That doesn't seem fair. And then he goes on to say, by no means. Is, Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. It's perfectly just for God to do what God does. And then he says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have Compassion So I mean, we, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Here's the issue, and this is why I think Augustine is right. We have something wrong with us. right? Would you anybody agree? Is there something wrong? Like how many of you have children? You can, you can raise your hand if your children are sitting next to you. We know. We know you have children. So raise your hand. I just want you to raise your hand. I want your children to see this um, so you can have an interesting discussion over lunch. Uh, so how many of you have had to teach your children to be truthful? How many of you have had to teach them how to lie? Not a single parent. How many of you have had to teach your children to be selfish? Not a single parent. How many of you have had to teach your children to be charitable and to share? Yes. Do you want to know why? Because there's something wrong with us. The Bible says that the heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It says in Romans, Paul even answered the question for us in Romans chapter 3. You want to know what's wrong with us? I'll tell you what's wrong with us. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul wrote, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. And later on in that chapter, he even goes on to say, And no one has any fear of God. That is our natural state. When we're from the moment of born, we're born, we are unrighteous, we we do not understand, and we do not seek God. And Paul said something in Ephesians chapter 2, which is the equivalent of of what he said in Romans chapter 3. He said this, and well, I'll pull this up. Oh, it's on the screen. Um, And you were what? Dead. Dead. How dead is dead? Dead. Dead. Have you seen anything dead? Get up and walk. No. No. Um, When you're dead, you're dead. dead. Good job. Uh, You're dead. So let's read this together. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature what? Children of wrath. Uh, Paul's going to touch on that later in chapter 9. We'll touch on it next week. We are children of wrath like the rest of who? Mankind. So when I was reading these verses and wrestling over these, I kept coming to the the conclusion, if I am spiritually dead, then that means I am spiritually dead, that there is no spiritual life in me. Something has to change. And if I'm dead, I can't do it on my own. And, and, And that's the point Paul is making here. Is, is there any injustice on God's part? No. No, by no means. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here's the deal. We're okay. We're okay so long as we know that we have freedom of the will to do anything that we want, spiritually or morally or whatever, even if it is at the expense of God's freedom. So long as I'm free and God is not, I'm cool with that. But the moment that I start to uh, start to see that God, that the only one who has full freedom of his will because he is perfect is God and my will is bound by my own nature, then I have a problem with that. Those were the things that, the, the things that I was coming to terms with. And that God in his in the freedom of his will has chosen to do what? Show mercy. Do you know what mercy is? And when I extend mercy to somebody, it's refraining to give somebody what they deserve. And Paul quotes God here, and he says, God chooses whom he will refrain to give what that person deserves on his terms and on his terms alone. So the right, so the right response to this When you answer the question, or when you ask the question, "Is that fair?" Like, "This doesn't seem fair," Uh, you're you're a good theologian when you conclude this is not fair. Because if if God was fair, He would refrain from showing all of us mercy. If He was fair, we'd all be in hell. If He was fair, all of our hearts would be hard as Pharaoh's heart. That's next week. If He were fair. You want to know why you're sitting here today? It's not not because of what John Calvin said, or Augustine said, or Pelagius said, or Arminius said. You want to know why you're here today? It's right in why you believe in Jesus. It's right in Romans chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 28. I don't have the words on the screen. I want you to look at it in your own Bible. Uh, Even underline it if you'd like. I'm going to read it for you, and it says this. You are here. You believe in Jesus and if you believe in Jesus and you are here today, the reason why that is is because you experience a supernatural work of God that only God can do and that you are powerless to do. Period. And if you're mad at Paul for what he wrote in Romans chapter 9, listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 44. No one, no one, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You are a Christian today because of the fact that God did the impossible in your life. He gave you ears to hear, he gave you eyes to see, and he gave you a heart of what the Bible says a heart of flesh. There's this passage in Ezekiel I think it's 36 or 26. I always get them messed up. But look up either one of those chapters. You'll see it. Uh, where, where God said, "I'm going to give you a, I'm going to remove your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh, and a new spirit. I'm going to put in you." Nowhere in that passage does He say, "Just get your act together." I know you can do it. I know you have the ability in you to do it, to take that heart of stone out of your, 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 yourself and, and put in a heart of flesh so that you can love me and obey me. Nowhere does it say that. Every time salvation and, and the miracle of new birth is mentioned in the Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation, it is an act that only God can do. You are a Christian today because God did the impossible in your life. And if you agree with me, amen, amen. One person agrees, so 90% of you are not coming back next week. Um, I'm joking. So here's what I want you to do. This is my challenge for, for everybody uh, in the first service. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. I, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. Um, my heart and desire for you is to take anything that you hear and measure it against the Word of God. And my challenge to you today is, if you're, if you're struggling with this, go home and search the scriptures yourself. Wrestle over the scriptures like I did over, over chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Romans, Ephesians chapter 1, um, Ezekiel uh, 36. Wrestle over them. Wrestle over them and pray over them. Uh, that's my heart for you. I, my... Uh, my fear is I for, for anybody is that you come on a Sunday, listen to what I say, and think that that's gospel. I don't want you to think what I say is gospel or 100% true. I want you to go home and be a person of the book. That's my, that's my, my, my role as your pastor, is to help you see the God of the Bible, but the only way that's really going to happen is if you open the scriptures yourself. Amen? Amen. Three of you agree. All right. So amen means I agree. So amen, Amen. that's like the Baptistic side of me, you know. Just so take a home, examine the scriptures for yourself, and 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 I'll leave you with this, and I'm going to pray. What Romans chapter nine says to me is that the only hope of the nations it's Jesus. The only way places like Minneapolis. Are going to experience salvation. The only way cities like Minneapolis, Minneapolis, uh, Denver, Cheyenne will ever change is one life at a time as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. Believing that by faith that Jesus lived the life we could never live, that he died a death that we deserved, and on the third day he rose from the grave. That is the gospel. And according to Romans chapter 1, Paul says that, is the power, that has the power to change lives, period. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what you're doing in the lives of, of everyone who calls Meadowbrook Church their church home. For those who are watching the live stream, I thank you. And for those in this room who don't know who you are yet, who are just not sure who Jesus is, God, I pray that they will hear that the that, that to receive the forgiveness of your sins is, is simple, it's free, and it comes just by faith. Faith that Jesus is the one who died in our place for our sins and rose on the third day. We thank you for the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.